Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listener, to episode 76 of the Ad Nauseam Podcast. As always, my name is Dr. David C. Noe, and I'm here in the Vomitorium with my good friend and fabulous co-host, Dr. Jeffrey T. Winkle. How are you, Jeff? I'm feeling good today. Excited right. about this episode. This yep. is going to be a special one, isn't it? It is. Yep. Whom do we have with us here in the studio today? We have our good friend and former colleague and mentor, travel companion, uh, Dr. Ken Brad. Teacher, advisor, advisor, so the, many the titles. The list goes on and on and on. Right. Yep. Now, Ken has been here before. He is, in fact, the first guest to make a repeat appearance. That's right. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. when was he here before? He was here, I think, last uh, summer. Yes. Talking to, talking to us about the archaeology at Philippi. That's right. Yep. And uh, a similar topic today, it's going to be on the catacombs around Rome. Yes. Yeah, uh, before we get into the, the into the weeds, uh, let's do our shout out for okay. today. Okay, yep. I'll start that out. This Please. goes to Daniel Turnquist. Daniel says, Hyrita, Dave, and Jeff. This is the first, isn't it, Jeff? The first Hyrita? The first one we've gotten. That's right. Yeah, so Much it, appreciated. Yeah, and it came just in the nick of time. Today. We'll use a little bit of Greek here. And hropeophthalmu. Ooh, Ooh, in the blink of an eye. Nice. Daniel says, I'm a senior majoring in computer science at the University of Minnesota. we got to stop right there. Why do we, do we allow computer scientists? Computer science? Yeah, but I know, it's breaking the code. Keep, keep reading. I think okay. this work gets good. He said, I minored in ancient Greek at the University of Minnesota. There I first is. came across the podcast on the Classics subreddit under a post asking for good classics podcasts where for some reason, listen to that, <laughs> sarcasm, ad nauseum was mentioned. I like the tone. I like okay. the tone, yeah. He says, I've been consuming this thing for about three months and I've managed to choke down every single episode. Oh, okay, he's, he's, he's on to it. Yeah, he's on to make it. of that what you will, he says. You want to continue? Yeah, so he... Uh, um, he wants to give a, a shout out of his own uh, within his own shout out mm. to his excellent Greek professors. Uh, he'd like to thank Anthony Thomas, Douglas Olson, and Nita Krevins mm. for enabling me to enjoy some of the finest literature out there and for giving me a lot of background to better enjoy this very podcast. Oh, yeah. That's so, nice. It's yeah. nice when uh, professors get appreciated. It is. And I admire these these uh, these people out there that do the, they kind of have the, the two sides, they, they choose to major in... You got the scientists, you got your more techie, kind of right. you know, black and white major, and then they, they balance it out with something in the humanities. I think that's really I admirable. Do. There's a yep. famous economist, Nicholas Nassim Taleb. He mm-hmm. wrote uh, Skin in the Game and Black Swan and those kinds of books. Mm. He says, uh, everyone should do something old and useless. <laughs> We've got that covered, right? <laughs> yes. That's and something sweet spot. Yeah. And yep. something new and useful. I think that's really good advice. It is very good advice. And uh, that's what Daniel's doing. I like that. He also included both a PS and a PPS. Are we gonna, it's, it's getting a little long, Daniel. Uh, well, we'll just, we? we'll just cover the PS. <laughs> all right, all right. He says, I may just join the Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata class once my university studies are done this whole podcast. I've been thinking, man, this Moss Method thing sounds great, but I've already completed my minor. That's my Daniel voice. What I really <laughs> want is to get my Latin off the ground, and it seems that my prayers have not gone unheard. All right. Well, he, ch- he needs to change the, uh, the may just to definitely will. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Yep. Sounds great. Well, thank you, Daniel, for, for writing. And he also he also gave us some really nice suggestions for episodes that he'd like to hear. He so did. That, you think we'll ever cover those, or the, we'll just take them in and keep them down? He requested one on, on Lucian. So this yes. is this is my guy. I yeah, Zamasada, right? Yeah, a, a true a true wants to us to do a true story. So some of that. Okay. You know, the early science fiction stuff. It's great. Okay. It's a great idea. Thank yeah. you, Daniel. Thank you so much. Right. 
So, Dave, we're talking about the catacombs. Today. Yes, we are. And we brought in Ken, who's our, our expert on kind of all things archaeological. That's right. Uh, particularly the, when it comes to kind of the history of early Christianity. Yes, material yeah. culture. He knows it from uh, vases to statues to corres, the, the whole nine yards. Yep. He's the go-to guy. Yeah. So you have the opening quote this week, right? I do. It's a little. It's kind of kind of off uh, off our usual beaten track. Is it li- usually we have. Uh, you know, something from an academic journal or a right. book chapter on some expert. And, and so I was looking around at my own books and not finding anything that, that I liked. And so I did some searching and I found this kind of this bleak poem. It's quite bleak. It is quite bleak. Um, yep. And I don't know anything about the, the, uh, the poet or the, the background, but um, I found this poem by a certain John Weinberg who wrote in 1987. This is the short poem called The Catacombs of St. Callistus. And it goes like this. Who then lives in the sandstone crammed between the spore of earth and air? No one here to sing your dead to sleep. And we were fooled, friend, to believe that dying was like treading the wind. Who then set the spark to the lightning bolt, allowed the slim aspen to tremble? Come, let's walk the stairs past the axe scar at the back of the skull, past the pulse fluttering in your neck. The crows outside are outliving the branches. The world is cold and sad. It's not time yet to change clothes with the dead. They can feed themselves. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of uh, qu- quite gruesome, It is kind of gruesome, it? right. Uh, you know my, I, I, I'm drawn to, you know my love of I know. You know, the urban legends and you know, horror films. Liminality, stuff. Liminality. Mori, the so whole I, nine yards. I like the uncanny, the, the, the weird. Yes. And But I like, the, I like that, you know, come let's walk the stairs. That's what we're doing. We're going to walk down those stairs into those catacombs and see what we find. Yeah, the most recent time that I visited the catacombs, very briefly, uh, my fellow tour guide, she could not go down in there. It was just too... I mean, not not the Italian tour guide, the other person I was traveling with. Oh, really? Wonderful individual. I won't mention her name, but there was no way she was going to go down there. Too creepy, too feeling of enclosed and trapped. Oh, a little, yeah, it's very claustrophobic. Down Absolutely. There, right? And very easy to, uh, if you go off the off the trail, very easy to get lost. That's right. right. <laughs> it's, a, it's a labyrinth of sorts. Yeah. All right. So what, what are we going to give the listener, the viewer today? Uh, a direct look through the eyes of an expert at the construction, the history of the catacombs, the occupants of the catacombs, some of the early art and the meaning, and a little bit, I think, from uh, the, the situation and the circumstances of them today, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So let's get right into it. All right. So we're going to look at, um, at, well, we'll see how this goes, but we hope to look at two specific sets of catacombs, the um, St. Callistus and St. Uh, Sebastian. Um, but I wanted to start, uh, Ken, with just some kind of general questions. If you could tell us about, you know, what makes the catacombs different than uh, kind of another typical you know, Roman burial site? What does the word even mean? Uh, where do we find them? Um, could, you t- could you start us there? Sure. Um, they're found in a lot of places, including Paris and so on. But if we think just of Rome, these are burial grounds underground uh, outside the city walls because it was illegal for the Romans to bury within the walls during the classical period. The term itself, catacombas, uh, comes from the Greek for near the hollows or the pits. And this derives from the fact that the catacomb of San Sebastian, in particular, originated in sand mines uh, south of the city walls, which were then abandoned and turned into a cemetery. Originally, it was a pagan cemetery, and when they needed more room, they began tunneling through the tufa, the volcanic rock, which underlies much of Rome. Uh, This tufa is easily excavated, so it was an easy kind of cemetery to construct. Once the rock is excavated, it also turns relatively hard, and consequently Mm. it's structurally firm. Mm. And you can bury a lot of people along the side walls of a long tunnel. 
when you run out of space, you just dig the tunnel deeper, and this tended to be the the mode of construction. Hmm. Now, when uh, you look at it, like a, uh, um, so, you know, I've looked on, you know, online, you find that, you know, the maps of the tunnels of the catacombs. It doesn't look to me like there's a lot of plan to it, but it, it, was it just kind of ad hoc? They just kind of built on as as needed and just, just yeah. dug in one particular direction? Right. They yeah. developed sort of helter-skelter. I have read that Roman law required the catacombs to be constructed beneath the same property lines that governed spaces on the surface. And there are, in fact, records of deeds and uh, ownership um, for underground cemeteries. Hmm. So within certain limits, they could move off in various directions. And of course, you could also go deeper. So in the catacombs of Callisto, for example, there are five levels going down as deep as 90 feet. Hmm. The yeah. first level, only about 20 feet down. Um, and they, and they sp spread, as you say, um, in, in every direction. Uh, sometimes they reconnect with old passages. Many of them originated in underground chambers for family tombs, which were then subsequently linked to the tunnels that allowed for access to more and more, and more burials. And it's estimated that the 50 catacomb complexes which have so far been found in the region of Rome um, ultimately held some 5 million burials. Oh, my. Wow. Uh, I don't know precisely how these numbers were calculated, but just to take the catacomb of Callisto, uh, one can measure the tunnels alone, and they, and they reach something like 10 miles in length. Hmm. Um, and, of course, there's very compressed uh, space along these tunnels in which every surface of the wall has been fitted with horizontal cuts, locally okay. as the Romans called them, right. in which the dead were actually buried. Hmm. So a loculus is like a drawer, actually, is a common term in for effect, a drawer. So yeah. Sealed by either a marble plaque mm. or a ceramic plaque in the case of the more modest tombs. Right. Now, did the Romans in engage in um, cremation, or was it all inhumation? Well, um, pagan Rome uh, practiced cremation until the second century in which a second century after Christ in which during the Hadrianic period the carving of above ground uh, or I should say uh, the carving of lavish sarcophagi came into vogue especially among the rich and so from the second century on mixed burial practices of cremation in urns and burial in large fancy sarcophagi were, were practiced by pagans Jews and Christians, on the other hand, did not cremate their dead normally, and from the beginning uh, favored a simple burial in which the corpse was wrapped in a cloth and deposited in the earth rapidly after death. Hmm. Um, and so the Jewish catacombs and the Christian catacombs have no burial urns. They do have some sarcophagi, but for the most part, the burials take the form of the loculus, the horizontal slot in the sidewall, or the arcosolium, a somewhat arched space into which the burial was made for fancier purposes. There are also some tombs that are known as mensa tombs in which the burial was, con was laid under a table of sorts. And we could talk more about how that table was used. Mm -hmm. um, and so they come in a variety of forms, but Christian and Jewish tombs are... Uh, full inhumations, hmm. and does does that relate to um, kind of beliefs about the the resurrection of, of the body at the, at the at the end times? You want your body to be at least somewhat intact. It if, certainly it, does on the Jewish side, okay, and I think it does on the Christian side too. David knows more about the literary evidence for these things than I, but um, 
no doubt there's a theological impulse behind the inhumation of the body. Right. And it's interesting, too, that the Christians tended to bury their bodies in um, communal cemeteries. Mm -hmm. In contrast with the pagan practice, which typically had been conducted on the surface along the main roads out of town, right. Mm -hmm. right, like right, the right. Via Appia, yeah. uh, where family tombs are the dominant form of, uh, of burial. And the family tombs become more and more elaborate in order to advertise the wealth and the power right. of, of the clan. Yeah. So is it is it fair to say that one of the first impacts of Christianity in terms of burial was to disrupt family bonds and redefine the family more in terms of the Christian community with well, which you were really associated? Yeah. By the third century, yes. I, I would hesitate to draw that conclusion from the first or second because we really don't have good evidence right. about Christian burial until about the year 200. Hmm. But from that point on, yes, um, the Roman Church specifically set aside the Catacomb of San Callisto for ecclesiastical burial. And uh, although some chambers in the catacombs would be presumably set aside for families um, who wanted their dead to be buried together, the catacombs as la at, at large um, comprise rich and poor and... Uh, uh, members of all kinds hmm. from the Roman church community. So we've talked a little bit about um, the association with Christians being buried rather than being cremated, but what about the legends of them worshiping in the catacombs? Is that just an artifact of Hollywood, or is there a basis it is, for it? Yeah, it's entirely fictitious. Um, th there were certainly ceremonies in the catacombs. For example, at the funeral itself, people would be present. Some of the chambers are capable of holding 20, 30, 40 people, but very, uh, the vast majority of the burials are in very tight space, poorly lit, poorly ventilated. One can only imagine what the decay of hundreds of bodies would have contributed to these <laughs> locations in the worst of times. Yeah. And you guys have been there. Um, uh, this is not um, a suitable atmosphere for any kind of crowd to gather. No, right. Worship. right, right, right. You right. can't have a, a cookie and a cup of coffee after the service down there. <laughs> no, although this gets me back to those tables. Uh, many of the chambers that were large enough to accommodate 15, 20 people have tables in them. Hmm. And the general interpretation of these uh, architectural forms is that Families would gather on anniversaries of the dead mm. to celebrate a ceremony. Some people think it was the ceremony known as the refrigerium, the refreshment feast, ah. in which food would be shared with the dead, symbolically. Mm -hmm. mm. Like a uh, jello salad, maybe, with some well, grapes suspended no. in between? We mustn't go there, David. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, it reminds me a lot of like 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 uh, like the Mexican Day of the Dead. You, yeah, you, you yeah. put out a feast for your 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 dead ancestor worship. Of course, was yeah. a common practice oh, in course. the pagan world, right. and Christians were not uh, resistant to carrying over some of those traditions even into their practice. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, my sense is my that a lot of those those um, legends of, of persecution come from. Like the novels and the films, like Ben Hur, yeah. right? Quovadas, uh, yeah, Quovadas. Like even in um, the novel Ben Hur. Uh, Judah and her and his wife are said to have established the the, the catacombs of San Callisto. Yeah. Right, mm. right. So, 
And there's a scene in there in which I think Peter is preaching to a crowd of what looks like 150 people, beautifully lit. Yes, it's true. Yes, exactly. exactly. Inside the catacomb. Inside the catacomb. Yeah, inside the catacomb. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny, you know, when I, talk, when I teach in class, I, t- I talk about Nero, and I ask, you know, students, you know, do you know anything about Nero? And one of the things I'll still hear is he goes, oh, he's the guy who threw the Christians to the lions in the Colosseum, oh. which, of course, was built you know, long after his death. Right. Yeah. right? And, so, yeah. and so these legends are still, they still have a, oh, they're a, alive. a foothold. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And the catacombs, going back to that myth about Judah Ben-Hur founding them, were not founded in the first century. Right. Uh, the very earliest uh, cemeteries may date to that period, but the catacombs themselves date largely to the third and fourth Mm. So the heyday of their construction was in the third and fourth centuries. At a, at a time, go ahead. At a time when, at least under Constantine, it was safe to be a Christian. Yes, right, and, right, right. And the churches were developing above ground with perfect security. Mm. Do you know? Do you happen to know uh, in terms of like you know, cremation versus inhumation, if that flip comes for the emperors too? Because I know, you know Trajan was cremated, Hadrian was cremated, um, but was, I don't, I, I confess I don't know anything about the burial of Constantine. Was he? Yeah. Constantine was buried um, intact. He was. And, and his family. Uh, and the, the uh, sarcophagi, which are porphyry, are now in the Vatican Museum. The one with the military scene on it was used for his mother, Helena, but was most scholars believe created for Constantine himself. Okay, he was buried in Constantinople, of course. Right, right. In a in a surround in a circular shrine, which no longer exists, surrounded by cenotaphs for the eleven apostles, the mm. twelve apostles, and Constantine in the center, like the thirteenth. He's the fifth beetle. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The successor of the uh, of the disciples wasn't or isn't his mother buried in the, that church near the Capitoline Hill? Or, yeah, Santa okay. Elena. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh huh. Okay. And uh, his daughter Constanza, Constantia as she was known then, uh, her tomb is fully preserved hmm. with a, with another porphyry sarcophagus, very beautiful with vine tendrils um, hmm. on its external. But Constantine's tomb is lost. In Constantine's sarcophagus may be uh, may survive in the one that was used for his mother. Okay. But uh, yes, his tomb his, is, his lost. Body is lost. Yeah. Okay. Um, the site on which the holy apostles once stood in Istanbul is now dominated by one of the great mosques. Okay. Right. 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 So uh, to change directions a little bit, you were saying earlier as many as five million individuals may have been buried. This is the calculation. But wh- where did all of the bodies go? Um, well, some of them are still there, uh, decayed, of course. The bones are still in many of the tombs, and those who have walked through a lot of the corridors will have seen skulls mm-hmm. and, and femurs and the like. But the main answer is that the popes first removed most of these relics to urban churches in the 6th and 7th centuries, starting with the martyrs. When the cult of the martyrs began to flourish in the late 4th and 5th century, uh, the relics of the martyrs were transported into urban churches. Often churches were built on the sites of these tombs as well. And uh, and so a lot of translation occurred. Mm-hmm. The, the relics were taken from the catacombs into the city. In fact, probably the biggest repository of uh, remains is beneath the floor of the Pantheon. Wagon loads of, mm. of bodies were emptied from the catacombs. Mm and brought into the city when the Pantheon was converted into the Church of the Martyrs, which oh, is how it got yeah. its name. So the floor was removed, pieces of the floor were removed, and the bones were yes. established there and then covered back yep. up. Oh. And another church, Santa Praseda, which is near um, uh, Santa Maggiore, uh, is also um, the repository of thousands mm. of burials from the catacombs. 
there was a in the seventh, late eighth and early ninth century, there were threats from Gothic and Lombard invaders, which prompted the popes to move a lot of uh, bones inside the city walls, in part uh, for reasons of security. And uh, so the long answer is that uh, the bodies are to some degree preserved, but they've been relocated. Hmm. And then, of course, we have to remember that pilgrims swarmed into Rome during these centuries and All right. made yeah. off with pieces of the remains hmm. as, pos as far as possible. Yes, we everyone we got a piece of the Apostle Peter, presumably. <laughs> well, some of these relics were, of course, they were divided up too, right? So you have some yes. churches have like the finger of so-and-so, right? Right, yeah. yeah. So the heads of Peter and Paul, for example, are allegedly in uh, San San Giovanni in Lateran, the St. John in Lateran. That's right. Uh, others uh, of their remains presumably are in the churches which bear their names. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. St. Paul outside the walls, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the Vatican. Right, 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 right. All right, so let, let's, um, let's turn to our first set of specific catacombs. Um, let's, look, let's talk about the catacombs of San uh, Callisto. Uh, but before we dive into that, uh, just curious, Ken, do you have a favorite uh, catacombs that you've been to? Well, I have a couple of favorites because of the circumstances in which I first visited them. Okay. Uh, but I love them all. Um, I love San, uh, Santa Priscilla catacombs because it it's the one where you get um, tour guides who are nuns. Oh. All the others are priests. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and do you find the nuns more well, the nuns knowledgeable, just more really, pleasant? I or? find them very cheerful. Okay. And... and uh, and San Pris uh, uh, I should say, the catacombs of Priscilla are also among the oldest and have some of the most beautiful artistic um, pieces. Okay. The other one I would mention is an obscure one called the Catacomb of Praetext. Uh, sorry, of um, uh, now I'm forgetting. That's okay. Pancratio, Pancratios, uh, which is on the Janiculum, not too far from the Vatican, hmm. and I discovered it by accident. It was perfectly open, no tours. You just wander into it from the church of the same name. Mm. And uh, it had tombs that were wide open with bodies still in them in some cases wow. or remains. And so it was those uh, occasions that just made those favorites for me. Right. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Right. right. Of, so, the, of the two we're talking to, uh, about today, do you have one that you prefer? Uh, yeah. San Callisto, of course, is much bigger and much richer. Um San Sebastiano uh, has a tour that's very limited, so you only get about 15 minutes in the catacomb, mm. and you don't see some of the key things that you would like to see. Right. Mm. Whereas San Callisto has tours that go, depending on the season of the year, uh, long or short tours that go into many different areas of the complex. Gotcha. Mm. Gotcha. So this one, Callisto, uh, named after Pope Calixtus I? Right. Third century, so 280s, something like 217. that? 217. Early, early, oh, century. early. Okay. Okay. Well, he was a deacon at the time. He was assigned to organize and administer this cemetery on behalf of Pope Zephyrinus, who was mm. in office at that time. And by the way, the word pope doesn't come into use until the fourth century. So mm. I guess to be precise, we should call him bishop. Yeah, episcopus. Uh, bishop. Uh, right. At any rate, yeah, he, it's named for him. He became the Pope later, the Bishop of Rome, uh, and he suffered martyrdom as well. He, ironically, he's not even buried in his own catacomb. Huh. <laughs> but uh, the, the the complex is named for him. Okay. Under whom did he die? Did, did he, what, uh... he died in um, 
You mean under which emperor? Under which emperor, yeah. Under yeah. the, uh, yeah. It was one of those 25 emperors who ruled between. Yeah. Oh, probably Valerius. Between 25 and 217. No, it was earlier than that. Oh, oh, I think okay. it was probably Galbina, Balbinus or uh, okay. Maximinus Thrax or one of those mm. guys who ruled for about a year <laughs> a before being assassinated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> So this one is uh, famous for the individuals that are buried there. Is that correct? Yes. Um, Sixteen popes or bishops of Rome are allegedly buried there. Um, five original epitaphs of, of bishops of Rome have been found in one chamber, the so-called Crypt of the Popes. And that became a nucleus um, developed by a fourth-century pope named Damasus um, as a major center of pilgrimage. Okay. So... Callisto is partly famous because it was the official cemetery of the Roman Church, and by the fourth century it had been uh, developed and um, elaborated in order to attract pilgrims, specifically. Uh, the first stairway built into the catacombs was apparently constructed by Damasus, and it's the same one you climb down today hmm. when you visit. Hmm. And we found the, the, uh, there's a number of these... Um like pilgrimage guides from the Middle Ages, right? That are, right. kind of tell you kind of where to go and, and what what to see, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that goes. I mean, um, uh, we did an episode on um, Necropolis under St. Peter's, the, the Scabi. Oh, good. And um, there's that uh, even that quote from I think Gaius that says, you know, you know, when you go there, make sure you stop at the Tropaeon of of, right. of, of Peter and, yeah. and, and and Paul. So that had been um, th- these sites as pilgrimages had been had, had been going on for quite some time, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And you can still see graffiti from hundreds of pilgrims on the stairways and corridors, especially in the area of the Crypt of the Popes, mm-hmm. which was certainly one of the most popular zones for pilgrims to live, uh, mm. to, to, to visit. Mm-hmm. Um, there was even a guide to the pilgrimage churches of Rome, I think seven of them, and one could... Um, uh, evade certain kinds of penance by visiting all seven oh. Roman churches. <laughs> sure, right, right, yeah. That would be convenient. Well, mm-hmm. it, it, it's uh, that you see the uh, similar kind of thing, like with um, like with the Hajj, right? And uh, mm-hmm. it's uh, by by going through the stages of that pilgrimage, right? You are you have completed one of the mm-hmm. the necessary five pillars, right? You're well outside yeah. my area of expertise. Uh, so you're talking mm-hmm. about uh, the, 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 is, Islam the, requirements the, the Islamic Islam? pilgrimage, right? Mm-hmm. So okay. You're, like if, yeah. if, if you're able to once in your life, you go to to uh, to Mecca. And needless to say, um, it had tremendous economic impacts on Rome. Uh, the attraction of pilgrims, especially on years of Jubilee, added a great deal of uh, funds to the papal treasury. Sure. And I think a lot, probably a lot of, um, uh, and then like the relics themselves becomes big business, right? And, and, and mm-hmm. to get the a kind of a flood of, of um, forgeries and fakes. And, oh, and this was before right. 3D printing, right? right? So you had to make up all this stuff on your own. Right. Mm-hmm. So how, how many of the relics do you think, I, I'm sure you can't give a percentage, but uh, do archaeologists think that some of the relics that were passed off were actually from animals or uh, bones from you know creatures and maybe just any available scrap that would be appealing to a martyr. I'm sorry, to a pilgrim. Uh, I can't answer that question. Yeah, uh, you're an academic. Speculate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a biologist or an osteologist. Okay. Um, I'm sure that that question has been studied. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's this myth that there are enough pieces of the true cross to compose a whole forest. Right. To build Noah's but, Ark. Right. right. <laughs> but, um, and the same may very well be true of many of the relics. Hmm. But places that got distinguished relics immediately became centers of pilgrimage. Right. And then centers of commerce as well. And commerce, saying. yeah. 
Well, to go to something that's a little more well-secured, what are some of the early Christian symbols and images that populate these catacombs? Well, that's another reason for which San Callisto is famous. It has an immense range of these images, both in sculptural form on the tombstones that survive in marble, and especially in fresco. So many of the chambers were frescoed and then painted. Um, the tombs were concealed behind a, a surface of plaster, and over the tomb were painted not only generic scenes that had been drawn from the Roman tradition, like, for example, the Good Shepherd figure, which is an a ancient classical image, right. mm -hmm. uh, the dove, the um, the garden in which the people are praying, right. the orant, the praying figure with the hands raised, and yep. so on and so forth, but also explicitly biblical narrative scenes. Mm -hmm. And so in some of the oldest paintings of the San Callisto catacombs, the five chambers of the sacraments, as they're known, um, we have images of Jesus' baptism, of Moses striking the rock, especially of Jonah, uh, three episodes of Jonah, Jonah thrown overboard, Jonah cast out by the sea monster on land, and Jonah reclining under a gourd. Hmm. Uh, all of these have a, ty a typological significance for the Christians in which um, images of, ancient, of biblical stories, and especially Old Testament, which outnumber the New Testament scenes by about four to one, I'm told, um, are meant to signify deliverance from peril. And in the context of the tomb, of course, deliverance from death. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of soteriological and symbolic significance to the imagery used in these tombs. The Christians did not avoid iconography. Um, they were not like the, the later uh, iconoclasts of the Orthodox tradition. They favored artistic representations, some of which had been drawn directly from the classical traditions. And even the biblical narrative scenes often have the same stylistic qualities that contemporary non-Christian art showed. Hmm. So one of the significances of um, San Callisto is that it is a repository of the earliest visible evidence of Christ distinctively Christian art okay. in these uh, biblical narratives. And most of it is in fresco, but there are sculptural representations as well, very early sarcophagi and especially relief sculpture on some of the epitaphs, the, the slabs that were used to seal the right. locally. So I've been thinking lately, and I, I'd like to be corrected here, um, the, the, the type or the motif of the, I think it's called the Boscophoros, is that right? The, the calf mm -hmm. carrier, which is a, mm -hmm. a common, I, I'm not sure I got that right, a common statue group where a man is shown carrying a calf on his shoulders? There's one at the Acropolis Museum in Athens, which is very famous, a 6th century BC uh, man bringing a calf to sacrifice. Mm -hmm. More common is Hermes carrying a ram okay. or a sheep in some cases. Were, were uh, either of these adapted into a Christian context of the, well, the savior, know, in terms, the shepherd carrying a lamb on his shoulders? Yeah. So there are numerous Roman scenes where a man is carrying a lamb. Uh, in the Christian context, clearly, this very symbol carries a new meaning. Yes. So. Uh, the Christians, in a sense, impute a new meaning to a number of conventional symbols. Okay. The dove might be another one. Right. The anchor might be one. The fish might be one. The shell, I uh, The shell, um, the branch, uh, the, the garden tree. Mm. 
Um, birds are often employed for um, in, in classical art, possibly to represent the soul or the spirit of the dead. Mm -hmm. And often these come from the Roman funeral or funerary tradition straight into the Christian tradition. But what's new, of course, is that they're juxtaposed with biblical narratives. Right. And the biblical, biblical narratives are um, rendered in a very summistic form. Mm -hmm. That is, um, only the basic elements are there. Someone who does not know the narrative right. would not recognize what um, a scene of a man with hands up and two lions next to him would right. represent. It's Daniel, obviously, uh, yes. right? So in the context of such imagery, the shepherd image comes to have a new meaning. Okay. A Christological meaning because right. Jesus himself identifies um, as, as the good shepherd. So if you were a, um, if you were a Roman uh, artist and, and part of your, your business, your commerce was to create these kinds of images and small statues and so forth for your customers, and then a Christian comes along and says, I would like a couple of carved doves or I would like... Mm -hmm you know, a, a small Boscophoros or something, they probably wouldn't have said that. But mm -hmm. you can pretty much use the same sort of material and repertoire, mm -hmm. but Christians will impute to it a different kind of meaning. Is that That's safe right. to say? Yes. And in fact, many scholars believe that the same workshops painted in the Christian catacombs as they were painting in other catacombs. Okay. Uh, so that you often have, presumably, some pagan artists who are at work decorating Christian uh, Christian burials. Hmm. And just to go back briefly to kind of these, these legends about early Christians, um, is there any truth of you know, kind of the blending of Christian imagery with, with pagan imagery as a way of kind of like a secret code, right? As a way to kind of slip it past the censors or, or? Very unlikely. Okay. Because the ownership of these spaces was publicly recorded and known to everyone, in fact, closed at various times, like under the Emperor Valerian, who closed the catacombs to new burials. Um, there was no way that these could be considered hidden. Hmm. And if you know the identities of the people who are buried there, uh, why would you have to be cryptic yeah. in your imagery? You've been reading Dan, other, Dan Brown? Is that it's, what it it's, is? Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's very Dan Brown-y, right? Yeah. <laughs> but that's also in the stuff of these, these late 19th century novels. Too. Yes. Yeah. Now, on the other hand, uh, it may not have been deliberately secretive, but it would not have been fully understood hmm. by a non-Christian because they would not know the narrative context or the meaning of revised um, imagery like the, the, the calf bearer or the lamb bearer. Hmm. And we don't see the, the symbol, the, the cross is much later. We don't see that. Much the, later. Yeah. Not, it, not until the 5th century do okay. we have our earliest specific reference to the crucifixion. Hmm. But there is that, that famous cross with a, a donkey mounted upon it, right? Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. On the Palatine. It's a graffito. Right. Um, probably dating to the 3rd century in which... Um, Alexander, I think, is his name. Um, reverences his his. Uh, it says you're worshiping your god, or something. Your god, right? So. Yeah, and it's the image of a of an ass on a cross. Yeah. Can he say that on this show? I think this is a family show. Well, we, we can bleep him out there. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Speaking of bleeping out, yes, it's time for the ads. It is. This episode of Ad Nauseam brought to you by Hackett Publishing. 
Hacker Publishing, this is their, I think their 50th year? 50th year. Yeah, the golden anniversary, just like the Gophers. Just the, the Gophers? The Golden Gophers the golden of Minnesota. Gophers. Oh, where we're, Daniel comes from. We're going from. back to the shout gotcha. out. Yes, that's right. So where are their offices? Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts? In Indianapolis, Indiana. Yes. Um, they've been in the business of bringing um, uh, affordable and approachable translations of the classics and yes. many other corners of academia for all these many years. I love their stuff. Dave, tell us a little bit about Hackett. Well, they have such a wide range of fantastic offerings. Like you were saying, they've got translations, not just one in each category. The Metamorphoses, we've covered that on the air. They've yep. got the Stanley Lombardo and the other one, which is just as good. Yep. Whose got, name I can't remember. Exactly. I got them both in my car right yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then they've got the Iliad, the Odyssey. They have uh, several editions of Aristotle. They've got Plato. Anything you could want, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You always like to talk about, and I agree, the lovely covers. Oh, the great cover art. Right. That's one of my favorite the moon things landing yep. and... Uh, the D-Day land, the, the, right. the D-Day landing. Yes, exactly. For the Iliad. It's great stuff. Yeah. Yep. So if a listener wants to patronize this podcast yeah. and get some great affordable translations and other kinds of things for themselves, what do they need to do? They need to go to hackitpublishing.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-T-T, publishing.com. Uh, pick out your text, right. drop it in your little digital satchel thing. We're going to go there again, talk yeah. about that. We're going to leave it right there. All right. right? <laughs> and then in the coupon code box, you type in AN2022, and that will get them what? 20% off, which by my calculation is about a fifth. About a fifth. And free shipping. Free sh- free shipping too. Yeah, and let's be honest. You cannot get that kind of a bargain at any other bookstore that I'm aware of. You cannot. It's yeah. phenomenal. So check, check it out. out. This episode is also brought to you by Racial Coffee. Racial Coffee of Portland, Oregon, uh, our good friend Mark Helweg has put together a fine coffee machine, both the Ratio 6 and the Ratio 8, that will solve all of your brew-based needs. Jeff, what do you like about the Ratio 6? I got the Ratio 6 in my house. I love uh, It's a sleek-looking machine. It's a work of art. It, it uh, outclasses everything else on my kitchen counter. Even the can opener? The can opener is so embarrassed. Especially the can Especially opener. Especially the can opener. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, the Cuisinart, it, it, I mean, there's no there's no contest. It just but crawls away in terror, right? It does. Every, te- every morning. But I press that button. It goes through its three stages. We're going to review those? Well, very quickly. The bloom. Yes. The brew. In, in the, can I talk about the bloom please, for a minute? Please do. Well, let's not be too hasty. Okay. During the bloom, the hot water comes down through the metallic vein, sits in that cone, and then off-gasses, as you like to say, mm-hmm. all of the harsh CO2. <laughs> yes. What are you left with as you move into the brew stage? Well, then the brew, that's where the magic happens. Okay. Tell that's, us about the that's, magic, That's Dr. where the, the hot water goes through the, the cone, through the grounds, and into the weighted, heavy, industrial carafe. That's right. Right. And right. it keeps it warm for hours. For hours with no scorch pad underneath. No, no and need for it. What about that other thing we like to say that people are getting tired of? <laughs> it leaves, it leaves a, the the brackish. Tang oh, you behind. had to say it. The brackish <laughs> tang. There is no brackish tang. No, not, it's not just at all. Sweet, delicious coffee. Right. So, if our listeners want to purchase either the six or the eight, yes. you've got the eight. I right? do. Which you could wax eloquent. Oh, I could. I could wax hours. on and then wax off. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fantastic machine, and the listener, it's incredible how many of uh, these Mark has sold with our coupon, which is? Uh, the coupon is ANCO. You had to look down at uh, your script? to Right. Re- I just want to make sure I get it right. Uh, okay, yeah, okay. ANCO. Yeah, he has just sold a, a great number of these. We're so grateful that you, the listener, has been supporting this podcast so faithfully. So go to Racial Coffee, R-A-T-I-O Coffee dot com. Pick out your six or your eight, drop the coupon code in there, ANCO, and get 15% off. And finally, uh, this episode is brought to you 
uh, by the Gold River Trading Company. That's uh, right. Purveyors of excellent tea. Why should our listeners just drink coffee after exactly. all? Exactly. We've got, we got both sides of the equation covered we here. We do. That's right. you know, and I, have to, I admit, um, I'm not a huge, or I wasn't a huge tea guy. Is this a confessional? It is a bit of a confessional, okay. right? We're getting real here. All right. Um, but uh, the, the tea that they sent us, um, their black tea and their green tea are excellent. Yeah, the gunpowder. The gunpowder tea, the gunpowder black. Right? I love the cacao. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> Somebody yesterday said cacao. Cacao? They said cacao. It's like a bird would say. Yeah, yeah. cacao. Uh, had some friends over the other night, uh, last night in fact, uh, mm. one of the young ladies, classics major, mm. and she said, I'd like to try that cacao. It was she who said it. I'd love to try that cacao tea that I've heard about on the podcast. Yeah. So we brewed her up a, a batch, and uh, it's uh, chocolatey and uh it's very refreshing. Yes, it, I've never tasted a tea like it. It's fantastic. Right? Yeah, yeah, it bridges that that um, that liminal space. Ooh, nice. between your traditional tea and your hot chocolate. Yeah, right. right. So, <laughs> listener, if you would like to try some Gold River Trading Company delicious tea, you need to go to goldriverco.com, mm-hmm. make your selections, put them into your little um, basket, and then what's the coupon code, Jeff? A N T E A N T. So you want them to up the ante? Yes. Is that what you're saying? Ante up. All right. That's right. Check it out. All right. Now, as we get back into it uh, yeah. this afternoon, Ken, we're going to we're going to change gears a little bit, move away from the catacomb of San Sebastian and uh, sorry, San Callisto, and take a look at those of San Sebastian. Dave, before we do that, can I tell one story? Of course, about the, the, the catacombs of San Callisto. So I was in Rome for a summer study back in 2006, and my wife was with me. This is and, the the Trajan's Column yes, episode. It was, yes, it was at the at the American Academy, and it was studying Trajan's Column. Um, whose ashes were buried inside the city walls. In, in, Trajan's ashes? Yes, he was. Yes, it was mm-hmm. like, you can, The pomerium? That. Right. But that's what the story's about. And so um, we had a free day, and I asked back my wife, what do you want to do? And she said, I've always wanted to see the catacombs. Right. And so we went to the, to the San Calisto catacombs, and it was this is the middle of summer, so there was a huge crowd. And you, you get your ticket, and you wait for your language to be called, right? And this guy, um, this priest came to, to lead us through, and he was a Brit. Oh. And he was on a mission to get us through that catacombs as quickly uh-huh. as possible. And so we're flying through it. I remember my, my, my favorite moment was we're in the crypt of the popes, and he's standing there, and he's just pointing. He goes, there's a pope, 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 not a pope, 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 pope. Let's move on. <laughs> and so Beck still tells that story to this day. Oh, that's so, funny. But he was just he was just pointing them out and let's next next corridor. <laughs> I'm sure he loved your American accent and uh, standard pop culture references and so forth. Of course, right. they're always charmed by that. Right, the Brits. Right. So it was not it was not a uh, it was not a very reverent experience. No, it was I can like, only hustle imagine. hustle us through. There's a pope, not a pope, not a pope. <laughs> yep. But let's talk about let's talk about the catacombs of San Sebastian. So, so Ken, what what makes these distinct or different than the catacombs we were just talking about? Well, for one thing, they've never been lost, uh, as the uh, catacombs of San Callisto were. Hmm. They were rediscovered in the 19th century, but San Sebastiano has been open to the public ever since Constantine built his church over these catacombs. And uh, they also were not named San Sebastian until much later. Uh, I read in one source, 7th century, another source says 9th century, it doesn't matter, but in the early Christian period, this catacomb was known as Ad Catacombas. That's mm. where the um, term came from. Mm. And subsequently also as the Memoria Apostolorum. Mm. 
And this refers to the fact that according to tradition, uh, at least in the 4th and 5th century documents, um, the relics of Peter and Paul were temporarily housed at this site and not at the Vatican and the Austrian mm. uh, church. Uh, so those are two distinctive things. Now, uh, one other, uh, two other factors that are quite different here are that um, the original tombs on this site were open-air tombs above ground at the time and subsequently buried. So beautifully preserved underneath the modern church, the more modern church, uh, are three second century mausolea, which originated as pagan tombs and were converted for Christian use at a t subsequent time and then buried. So today you have to go into the basement of the modern church in order to see these second century tombs which were constructed above ground originally. Hmm. And next to them, uh, from the, about the third century, is a plaza, again buried at a later time, that once was open air uh, for the purpose, according to the scholars who've studied this site, of uh, exercising the funerary uh, rituals hmm. and especially the funerary uh, banquets that would be celebrated oh, here. Yeah. So there's a so there's a plaza there. You said there's a plaza under the modern church, yeah. directly under the nave of the church as you would visit it today. I find that plausible. <laughs> you. That was you were just you were just itching really to do I was trying yeah. to get that in there, and I just I didn't want to be rude to my friend and mentor as he's explaining yeah. all this brilliance, but I just had well, to. In the middle of this plaza, okay. which you so eloquently described, uh -huh. uh, is a uh, a well that was constructed, presumably to provide water for the rituals okay. of the funerary uh, ceremonies. And adjacent to the plaza is something called the triclea, a, a architectural construction which the scholars uh, describe as used for the purpose of these banquets on the walls of which are over 600 graffiti naming Peter and Paul, hmm. largely naming Peter and Paul. And so there are a number of bits of evidence here. Uh, nothing is uh, decisive, and of course scholars argue about these matters as always. Um, but it seems that this was a site at which the relics of Peter and Paul were at least temporarily lodged. Do we know why, hence, why they would be there? Um, one assertion is that the final tombs of Peter and Paul were still under construction in the fourth century, and this was um, a facility that was designed by Pope Damasus in the late fourth century as temporary lodging for the relics before the final deposition was made. I find that less, less plausible than the other, which is that in the persecutions of Valerian in the year 257 and 258, the um, Christian community was afraid that the relics would be stolen from mm -hmm. the Vatican and from the Austrian way and secreted them away for temporary preservation in the, um, in the San Sebastian catacombs. Hmm. Um, they were definitely back in the Vatican and the Austrian locations by the mid-fourth century. 354, I think, is the year I read. Hmm. Um, so, uh, despite the debate, there seems some plausibility uh, to the assertion that for a time, the relics of Peter and Paul the Apostles were here. Hmm. And the catacomb came to be known only much later as the Catacomb of Sebastian. And the story behind that 
is that this man, St. Sebastian, was a member of the Roman military? He was a uh, was... captain of the Praetorian Guard mm -hmm. uh, in the reign of Diocletian. So this is late 3rd century, 280s, um, and allegedly was a Christian uh, whose faith was discovered accidentally. He was uh, forced, uh, he was urged to deny his faith and uh, sacrifice the emperor refused to do so, at which point Diocletian allegedly punished him by tying him to either a tree or a column. The column is partially preserved. Uh -huh. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I've seen it. At which point he was shot by archers and assumed to be dead. However, when Christians came to claim his body, it turned out that he had survived this persecution. He was allegedly healed by St. Irene of Rome. And uh, subsequently and rather foolishly, confronted Diocletian a second time <laughs> <laughs> to rebuke him for uh, uh, persecuting Christians. Right. Yeah. At which point, Diocletian had him clubbed to death. Hmm. He was buried on this site, and his tomb is now venerated in the church above, but there is a, a cubicle in the catacombs below, which allegedly was his original place of burial. Hmm. That always reminds me of, of like Odysseus shaking his fist at the, at the Cyclops, right? Yeah. Yes. Not, not necessary. Right. right. Yeah. right. Is, is this the church? I'm trying to remember. I was there last in um, 2018, I think. Is this the church with the rediscovered uh, bust that supposedly is Christ by... Well, there's a Bernini bust Bernini? of Christ, one of his late works. I don't know if it was rediscovered. Well, I mean to say that it was recently identified as probably uh, Bernini as Bernini's. Yeah, after that's a quite, few quite centuries possible. of yes. uncertainty about who was the uh, the artist and what was yeah. it meant to represent. It's a spectacular portrait of Christ. Yeah. This is the same church. Right. And now the tomb of Sebastian is in that church on the left aisle, I think, as you come in, <clears throat> with a portion of the column to which he was allegedly tied. Uh, so, like many of the martyr stories, this has been elaborated over the centuries. Sure. Mm -hmm. Sebastian is one of the most commonly uh, shown uh, martyrdoms in Western art, painted repeatedly, uh, partly because of the spectacular possibilities of a man full of arrows, You're right, like right. a porcupine. Yes. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Very interesting. So, in uh, the early iconography, um, is it exclusively pagan imagery we've talked about this a little bit but uh, is the pagan imagery and the christian imagery mixed pretty thoroughly it is in these three mausolea because they originated as pagan tombs right in fact the inscription of the owner of the tomb is still intact on one of them but they were modified for reuse by christian burials and so in one case in the vault of the second century mausoleum there's a gorgon head hmm. an apotropaic image uh but subsequently, in the very same tomb in the third century, Christians were buried in there, and so we have the ichthus inscribed right. in a graffito, uh, the the acronym for Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. Right. Um, and we also have Christian frescoes on the walls of the same mausoleum, and in that sense, they are mixed. However, by the third century, when Christians began extending these catacombs, um, almost exclusively Christian burials. Uh, begin to appear in the third century, and the pagans seem to have ceased to use this location. Hmm. So we have first and second pagan tombs in this area, hmm. but by the third century, it's making a transition almost entirely to Christian use. Hmm. And when did the uh, catacombs cease to be used as we start to wind down here this afternoon as burial places for the Christians of the city of Rome? 
In the 5th and 6th centuries, they largely ceased to be used for two reasons. One was, as I mentioned earlier, the popes began moving relics into the city, right. and especially into above-ground churches in the city, where the relics began to be essential components of Roman Catholic architecture. Uh, a proper mass, for example, must be said on a, on a table that has relics embedded in them. Mm -hmm. And so beginning in the 5th and 6th century with the translation of all these relics into the city, the catacombs ceased to be of any use. In addition, beginning with Constantine, basilicas were constructed over many of these cemeteries right. as cemetery basilicas, and at that point, burials in the floor of the church became a very common new mode of mm -hmm. burial. Hmm. So. New, new Christian burials tended to be close to the sites of important uh, tombs. Right. Um, burial ad, uh, ad martyres or ad apostolos, for example, was highly favored. The closer you could be buried to a famous saint mm -hmm. or to an apostle. Just like um, my, my office used to be right next door to yours. Exactly, right? yes. <laughs> it's so, pretty much the same thing. <laughs> it's pretty much exactly the same <laughs> Comparing menorah to mayor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was by the 5th or 6th centuries that the catacombs ceased to be used for new burials. Hmm. Now, you couldn't be buried in there uh, now, right? I mean, they're completely closed off to any kind of... Um, burial or contemporary use and entirely uh, holy sites for the Roman Church and they and are all controlled by the Pontifical uh, Institute of Christian Archaeology or Sacred Archaeology as they call it. Um, I believe there are a few burials, for example, in one of the basilicas that still stands above the catacombs of San Callisto is buried De Rossi, the mm. 19th century discoverer of this catacomb. Mm. His tomb is in the very place where you get the orientation lecture before right. you go down. I remember that spot. Um, and I have observed groups of Catholics celebrating Mass in some of the chambers hmm. as visitors to the catacombs. But whether they're celebrating Mass for any contemporary burials, I don't know. Hmm. Hmm. My guess is that very few modern burials are, are in this area. Yeah. Now, now, correct me if I'm wrong, um, but I, I could try to kind of connect this, you know, this practice of, you know, the bones of the saints kind of sanctifying the place, mm -hmm. um, having a, um, any kind of kind of pagan corollary. Um, you don't find, you know, uh, you know the Greco-Roman temples built on those sites with that in mind. But there are, you know, those stories about um, you know, the, the prophecies about, you know, where who will get the bones of Oedipus and, mm -hmm. and you know, uh, who yeah. will get the bones of, of Theseus. There's a similar mm -hmm. kind of idea there, isn't there? There is, yeah. So um, the hero's grave, in general, was regarded as having spiritual power in the immediate location. Yeah. So Oedipus's burial site in Athens, for example, was thought to convey spiritual power somehow to Athens. And in the play Oedipus... Uh, Colonus, uh, right? Colonus. Yeah. Uh, you have uh, the relics of Oedipus deliberately being welcomed into Athens mm -hmm. as, as having some potency. Right. Similarly, Chemon in the fifth, fourth, fifth century went all the way to the island of Skiros, excavated a gigantic um, skeleton, 
and brought it back to Athens yeah. as the bones of Theseus. Right, right. And probably a, probably a mastodon over. or something. As it, <laughs> well, who knows no, what serious. it was. Really? That, that is one yeah. of the scientific explanations. That mm-hmm. If a mastodon or a mammoth is found in situ, is that a good phrase there? Yes. All right. Very excellent. Thank excellent you. Excellent Latin. <laughs> uh, it, can resemble, it can resemble a human, a human? skeleton, hmm. and especially the, the, the mastodon's the skull, this is not so much for Theseus, but for the Cyclops, right? There's a large mm-hmm. hole right in the center mm-hmm. of this circular disc-shaped mm-hmm. skull where there may have been an eye, right? Gilopes, yeah. that's yeah. one of the theories. Yeah. So shrines for heroes burials certainly have importance in classical tradition. And the shrines of imperial burials, of course, have importance for the Roman world. Right. This is a little bit different, uh, although the role of the of the um, saint and the cult of uh, his relics uh, bear some similarity to pagan rituals about physical remains of heroic figures. Right. Hmm. Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, um, I, I just wanted just to, uh, I mean, this is a little bit kind of off topic. I just wanted Ken's opinion on this. Um, uh, the kind of the history of relics and kind of the myths of relics is something that fascinates me. Uh, do you have an opinion on like the authenticity of, you know, the relics of Peter in the Vatican or the relics of Paul in, you know, outside the walls. Or, um, or we could say uh, the head of St. Andrew, right, at Patras. Mm-hmm. Oh, right, right. That we Which saw together. Yeah. Yeah. Did you kiss the icon? I know I didn't. It was behind <laughs> It was behind yeah. glass. You and I were there together. We, actually, right? you can you can kiss the top of the reliquary. Well, maybe next time. Yeah, okay. But, but if, if you were just to kind of give a quick hot take uh, on well, that. Well, you know, yeah. um, uh, I'm inclined to think that some of these places, some of these shrines, some of these monuments have a historical foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you mentioned earlier, the Tropaia of Peter and Paul, yeah. uh, especially the one at the Vatican, uh, can be documented by Gaius, uh, who is recorded in Eusebius, as saying that such a monument existed by about the year 160. Yeah, It's not impossible that <clears throat> the memory of Christians for Peter's place of burial um, could have survived from 60 AD to 160 AD. This is not impossible at all. No. Yeah. And uh, indeed, um, like the tradition claims, he was buried in a public a public cemetery, a, a cemetery of mixed pagan and, and Christian burials. Uh, his tomb was venerated at a very early stage. When excavations were done there, however, we went to the Scavi together, right. and when excavations were done there in the 50s, all they found was um, two burials under the niche that was yes. supposedly the marker of his grave, and neither of those burials was that of a 60-year-old person hmm. or a male. Uh, subsequently, however, they did find in a repository in the left wall of this niche um, some fragments of bones that were attributed to an elderly male of heavy build. Yes, uh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And those relics have been displayed on occasion by Pope Benedict and more recently by Pope um, uh, Francis. Francis. Yeah. yeah. On the on June 29, which is the feast day of Peter and Paul, hmm. uh, what they amount to are tiny fragments of tibias and finger bones, maybe eight of them altogether. Uh, which could conceivably be memory uh, relics of um, an older man buried in a special place at a special time. 
So I don't say it's impossible. Mm. There's no way of proving it, of right. course. Right, right, right. And yeah. so these are matters of faith more than they are of archaeology. Yeah, yeah. Good. But to yeah. call back to an earlier part of the episode, plausible, right? Plausible, right, man. Plausible. Twice, really? Oh, come twice. on, <laughs> come on. Yeah. So we're on the downslope here, aren't we, Jeff? We are, yep. About to wrap things up. Did we want to go through the catacomb lightning round? Uh, or should we save that for another episode? We can save that for another episode. <laughs> so the catacomb lightning round is there's a long list of names of yeah. catacombs. And we were just going to ask Ken if he has visited any of these, if he's seen them, if they're accessible. Like Domatilla, Comadilla, Generosa. I've been, I've been to six of them. Oh, okay. six. And three of them are regularly open to visitors today. Okay. I don't know how the pandemic has affected it, but uh, you can go to catacombida.roma ah. and you will find a Vatican site. That gives you all the information about those that are open, okay. their addresses, and so on. Okay. Maybe we, maybe we could end with this. So, Ken, so if, um, if they, somebody going to Rome, having gone through San Calisto, San Sebastiano, if you were to say, all right, you've got, you've got time to check out one more, where would you send them? One more? Yep. Domatilla. Domatilla? Which is right next to Callisto. Okay. So you Callisto just, okay. and uh, uh, Sebastiano are both on the Via Appia, just south of Rome, two miles. Ways out of town. And uh, just a bit to their west is the catacomb of Domatilla. Okay. Beautiful place. Very beautiful. And unlike the other two, it has a, a basilica, funerary basilica that was constructed as part of the catacomb complex in its later stages. So you can meet in a large basilical uh, form and then move off into, right. the, into the tunnels. Yeah. Mm. Well, if we have Ken back for a third episode... Yes, which, which we will. Yes, yes, we have to talk about a very fascinating subject, which is the transition from a Roman civil building, the basilica, yeah. to a church. Church, yes. Which mm -hmm. is, a, a, I've always found that fascinating. I first learned that from Ken, like many things. Yes. Mm-hmm. But we're up against it. We got to get out of here, don't we? Get out of here. Yep. Uh, before we go, Dave, you want to talk a bit, a bit about the Moss method? I do. If you want to study Greek, if you want to go from neophyte to erudite, yes, I have just the program for you. Go to mossmethod.com, and for two ninety nine, we're offering a special right now. You can purchase it at the stated price. Am I supposed to say something there? No, I'm just saying. Okay. The special thing is there's no discount. Just oh. purchase it at the stated price. <laughs> Come on, it's $299. You, yeah. can, you can't get into Disney World for that, I don't think. It's, it's true enough. And yes. this is so much more entertaining than Disney. Uh, I take you through all the steps, alphabet. You've got 40 lessons, 40 video lectures, quizzes, exams. And perhaps the, the best feature, I don't know, is you get constant access to my expertise. All the Greek that I have learned in the last 30 years of studying and teaching, much of which I I learned from this man right here, I can uh, impart to you, hopefully. So, mossmethod.com. And you've you, what, another piece of uh, good news, you've outsourced a lot of this to a bunch of flunkies, No, right? no, there are no flankies involved. Not, no, not one flanky? I do flanky? this all myself. Okay. Just this morning, we had Moss Method office hours. Uh, we had a young man from New York. We had a, uh, uh, a very famous scholar from here in the state of Michigan join us. We had a young man from Alabama and uh, another individual. Boy, I'm going to regret forgetting this person. <laughs> but we got together. We read through Mark chapter 2. And uh, sometimes we look at Homer, sometimes Plato, a little bit of Sophocles occasionally. Really anything you want. Um, we have the weekly Moss Method office hours. It's global. It's global. That's yeah, awesome. people from all over. Excellent. All right, so we got, as always, some people to thank. Yes, Thanks we do. Thanks to, to Mishka, our engineer, for stitching all of this this madness together. Right. Um, Ken and, and Scott for the great music that you yes. hear throughout the episode. We got Agricola in the studio here running the, the, house. Uh, yep. uh, the videography and the lights and all of that, making sure the, um, I don't know, is there a key grip? 
There's a, we had a, we got a, at least a boom, couple, a, a gaffer, two a, gaffers. A gaffer is a person, is that right? I think that's right. <laughs> okay, that's right. So George oversees all of that and makes sure that uh, it turns out like it's supposed to. I remember the guy's name. Yeah, Jay from Kansas. That's the one. Yeah, I didn't want to forget Jay because I know he's listening. It's a okay, Jayhawk. Yeah, he's a Jay. It's a Jay. <laughs> Perfect. Hey, so if you want to, if you want to uh, drop us a note, if you want a shout out, if you want to be like Daniel and give us some great ideas for future episodes, which, which, if I may say, he put in the subject heading, hate mail, more hate mail. He did. Well, he's got, he's got, he's Dan's a little got a bit facetious. Of, he's a little, got an edge to him. Yeah, right? he definitely does. We'll but send later. it to us. Contact us. Yep. Send your hate mail to Jeff at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. That's right. Or you send your hate mail to Dave at adnauseum.com. Again, don't forget the V. That's right. Uh, Dave, what are we doing next week? Next week? You ready? You this can... is the first time you've heard this. Yes. We are going to cover a book by a very famous Renaissance scholar, yes. a woman named Erica Rummel. Okay. And the book is Erasmus as a Translator of the Classics. Interesting. There's some absolute gems in there, and it should be quite interesting. So we're zipping forward in time. Yeah, we're going to go way to... ahead. Right. We're going to skip from the 3rd century, 4th century AD, all the way up into the 16th, and take a good look at Erasmus and the Renaissance. Excellent. And Dave, you have our gustatory parting shot today. I do. This comes from the famous 19th century French author, Victor Hugo, a man who read the classics as a child. And it's from his uh, his famous novel, Les Miserables. Is that how it goes? That's right on. All right. Excellent. And he says, quote, a person may not want any more of his cake, but that is no reason for giving it away. What's to live by? Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thanks.